You are listening to the Vineyard Nordic podcast. We invite you to join us on the exciting journey of following Jesus and bringing the kingdom of God wherever we go. This episode was recorded at the Vineyard Nordic Summer Camp. I think shame is one of the most insidious weapons that the devil uses. I think the devil loves to use shame. He loves to whisper in our ears and say, you got that wrong. You failed. You let that person down. You let that vulnerable person down. You let that parent down. You let yourself down. You let the church down. You let God down. He loves to whisper those things to us. It's one of the reasons I'm part of the shame. But I also think shame is one of the absolute root causes for burnout. Shame and the fear of failure is one of the main, it's the thing behind the thing behind the thing. It's that subversive, hidden thing that gnaws at you until you burn out. So we're talking about burnout today, and what we're going to do is we're going to break this seminar into two parts, two acts. So act one, part one, we're just going to think about shame and failure. Is that okay? I know it's a little bit morose, maybe, but, um, but I think it's important to, to think about the thing behind the thing behind the thing. We're just going to think about shame and failure, and we're going to think about how to disarm Satan of that tool. The second thing we'll do is we'll think more practically. We'll think about the reasons for burnout. We'll think about some of the things we can do to combat it. But I think it's important to start with shame, because that's the bit we taboo, you know, this word taboo. It's um, this idea that we don't really like talking about it. So we'll start with shame. And what I'd like to do in this first part is just to recalibrate from the Bible how we view failure. I'd like us to reconsider how we think failure really works according to what the Bible says. And in doing so, we will disarm Satan of that weapon. And you've got to agree with me that Satan with less weapons is a better Satan. So we're going to disarm Satan today of that weapon so he cannot use shame against us. If you have a Bible, it'd be great. If not, don't worry, I'll read it out. But if you have a Bible, it'd be great if you could turn to Luke chapter 24. And you know, I'm just, as we're finding that, I'm just going to pray again. Because now this feeling of shame is starting to to spark memories and thoughts. I'm just going to hand this over to God. So God, once again, we ask you to be in control. We ask you to inspire and defend. We ask you to fight for us. We ask you, even as we speak, because the devil will be raging against this now. We're talking about disarming him. We pray that you remove him from this room and and any presence of his in this space and from our hearts. And as protectors in your name. Amen. So, Luke 24. I'm starting from verse 13. Luke 24, verse 13. Now, the same day, two of them, two of the disciples of Jesus, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that happened. And as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself came among them. But they were kept from recognizing him. I really wish I had that skill. You know, my friends are walking in town and I just, hey, how are you doing? They have no idea it's me. Brilliant. And Jesus says to them, what are you talking about? What are you chatting about? And they stopped dead. They stood still. 
their jaw dropped, their face downcast, it says. And one of them, Cleopas, said to him, Are you kidding? I'm, I'm paraphrasing slightly. <laughs> Are you the only one from Jerusalem who does not know the things that have been happening here? What's wrong with you? How can you not know this? And Jesus quite innocently says, <laughs> and then the words start tumbling out of their mouths about Jesus of Nazareth very quiet he was a prophet powerful in word and deed before God and all the people the chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to the death and they killed him they crucified him how can you not know this they killed him and verse 21 this is the verse I want you to really notice but But we had hoped that he was the one going to redeem, to save Israel. But we hoped this was it. We thought this was it. You can feel the crushing weight of failure in that subtext. We've just given four years of our, three years of our lives to this. But he died. He failed. We failed. It's over. We got it wrong. And they are just broken. <coughs> and then Jesus has what I like to call a, a Gandalf moment. <laughs> he has a, a little giggle to himself, I think, and goes, how foolish you are. That's my Gandalf. <laughs> Thank you very much. How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah Jesus had to suffer these things and enter his glory. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explains them all in the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus doesn't say, sure, okay, he died, but it's okay. He doesn't say, okay, I know he died, I know we failed there, but we'll get it right from now on. He explains that the very moment of perceived failure, the very thing that they thought was the ultimate failure, was the very same thing that brought salvation. The very moment of salvation was the very moment of perceived failure. There's no separation between what they thought was failure and what Jesus bought salvation from. And it's not the first time the Bible's taught this way. So if you've got a Bible, flick back to Genesis chapter 50. So the last chapter of the first book, Genesis 50. If you were at my seminar yesterday, you know I do love my Bible. Um, and so uh, I've this book is about how we look at young people from the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation. So I think it's important to, to stay with the Bible. So we're going to do a bit of Bible today. So Genesis 50, verse 20. And this, if you know the story, it's the end of the story of Joseph. And he's reflecting on the harm that his brothers have caused him and how God had used it for good. And this is what it says, Genesis 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Now, to be honest, this verse is about as good as it gets in English. Uh, It might be better in a Danish translation or something, I don't know, but... Um, it's actually incredibly hard to translate this from the original Hebrew. Um, the English language doesn't actually have the syntax, the grammar required to render this verse well. It's as good as it gets. 
And it's all because of this word it. I-T. You meant it for harm. God meant it for good. This word it in Hebrew is desperately tricky. In Hebrew, the word it allows for several different people, different agents, to act on the same thing at the same time. But in English, we have no way of doing that. We have to have a different it for every sentence. We have to have a different object. So we have to say, uh, God, you, sorry, you meant it, it's number one, for harm, but God meant it, it number two, for good. Like they're two separate things. In English, we have to write the word it twice. But in Hebrew, you don't have to do that. You only have to use the word it once. You meant it, and God meant it. One it, for good, for harm. One it. There is one it and two agents acting on the same thing at the same time. It's kind of like in football. Um, if two people scored a goal, it's not one person set up the goal and then the other person tapped it in. It would be two footballers, two footballers' feet acting upon the ball exactly the same time in the same space. Two feet occupying the same space at the same time, so the goal is scored literally by both of them. Now, of course English doesn't have a way of rendering this, because that's physically impossible. <laughs> Why would English need a word for that? But of course it's not impossible for God. You meant it for evil, but God meant that same it, the very same thing, for good. The very place of harm and struggle and pain, of perceived failure, that very horrible, desperate place that should cause so much shame, that was the very same place that God walked through. God inhabited the same place as that pain. God brings fruit, salvation of many people, right out from the middle of failure. Now hear this very, very carefully. God is not God despite our failures. God is not God even if we mess up. God inhabits our failure. God is God right in the middle of our failure. God brings fruit from the very same act of failure. God is God over fruit. He's God over failure. I think we see the two as mutually exclusive, like they both can't exist together. We see uh, failure and success as two different dials. If you dial up fruit on success and health, you have to dial down failure. And if you dial up failure, then obviously things are going badly. It's not how it works in the Bible. The Bible doesn't speak the same way we do. The Bible doesn't support that dualism. God brings fruit and success and health right out of the very middle of failure. Think about it. The greatest fruit ever born, the greatest success story, is Jesus on the cross. The very place the closest disciples called was a place of failure. <coughs> 2 Corinthians 12, 19, so 2 Corinthians 12, 9, says that God's power is made perfect in our weakness, in our weakness, not in spite of our weakness, not bypassing our weakness, but in the very middle of our weakness. Inside our failure is God's power shown. How many, sorry, yes. Uh, uh, that was 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. What failure have you written off and said, God, I wish it didn't happen that way? 
and forgotten that God inhabits that very place of failure. If God inhabits our failure, then where's our shame? Where's our right to feel shame? And what about Satan's lie? What about Satan's lie? Because Satan accuses us with shame and failure. You got that wrong, and shame fills us, and so we burn out. If you, I want one more verse. If you've got a Bible, Colossians 2. Colossians chapter 2. <clears throat> this is going to be a little complicated, but you're all very bright people. <laughs> yes. I love how you smile when I say that. <laughs> you're all very bright people. Yes. Uh, we will get this. <laughs> Am I speaking slow enough? Am I okay? Okay. Uh, even in my own country, I tend to speak too quickly. Uh, and my church knows me well enough to throw something at me. Uh, but pillows, not chairs. <laughs> so Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made you alive with Christ. When you were dead, he made you alive. He forgave us all our sins, having, this is the important bit, having cancelled the charge of our legal debt which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to a cross. It's a little complicated, so stay with me. For someone to accuse you of something... For someone to accuse you of anything, they have to appeal to a law or a rule, something that you've broken. They have to have an agreed standard to go off, something to condemn you against. If someone says, you're late, there has to be an agreed standard. There has to be a, we agreed to meet at this time and you weren't here. There has to be a rule that you've broken. If you get a speeding ticket... Which has never happened to me. <laughs> if you get a speeding ticket, there needs to be a speed sign and a law to back that sign up. Otherwise, don't pay it. An accusation doesn't work without a standard, without a rule. So what's Satan appealing to when he accuses us? What standard is he going for? What law? What rule? Well, he's using the Old Testament law, isn't he? That's the circumcision bit he's talking about in this passage. The law that stood against us, that used to condemn us before Jesus. He's appealing, he's manipulating the Old Testament law, the Torah. He's appealing to something that Jesus has fulfilled. He's appealing to something that God gave and he has no right over. But that very standard, the thing that would have condemned us before Jesus, he's trying to trick us into thinking still condemns us. When he lies to you, he's trying to pretend that that legal code still holds you. It doesn't. It's been nailed to the cross. That's what this verse says. Every possible piece of broken law has been paid for by Jesus dying for you. The standard itself has been paid for, not just the consequences. The law has been paid for. It doesn't mean the Old Testament law is bad or useless or obsolete, but it does mean there is no possible wrong that you could do. There's no failure that you could do that hasn't been fully paid for on the cross. So where's your shame? Where's your shame? How does Satan's accusation stick? It's got nothing behind it. Where is it? Jesus' victory inhabits 
the place of failure. So where's your shame? Why do we hold on to shame? If you trust in Jesus, there is no eternal cause for shame. There's no legal cause for shame. There's no reason behind it. And this means that Satan has, in, in, in reality, Satan's got nothing. He's got nothing. He's got no weapon. He's got no tool. He's got nothing, no charge that can stick against you. He's got nothing. Whatever Satan says is literally impotent, useless. So you look at verse 15, the next verse, it says, And having disarmed, disarmed the powers and authorities, it's one of Paul's favorite words for Satan and demons, disarmed powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them. He triumphed over them by the cross. Satan is disarmed, and then he's hauled out as the fool he is. Because Jesus' victory occupies the place of failure. Are you with me? When we hold on to shame from failure, we re-empower the standard that Jesus died for. Let's not take this lightly. When we, like I do, when we hold on to shame from failure, we rearm Satan. We re-empower the standard that Jesus died for. We give Satan his weapon back. We rob the cross of its power. But Romans 8 tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God occupies the space of failure. When we hold on to shame from failure, we re-empower the standard that Jesus died for. We give Satan his weapon back. We refuse to accept his transformation. We refuse his healing. Why would we do that? And this happened to me. This happened to me. Um, in my very first ministry job, um, I went to work for a really big church in South London. Um, I came straight from Bible college. Um, I was uh, young, younger than I am now. Um, younger and slightly more handsome than I am now. Um, and my time in that church was just a string of failures. And I'm not being melodramatic. I was just bad in that job. I really was. I, was. I was too young. I was too inexperienced. I wasn't ready for the role. I didn't understand the culture. Uh, I got a lot wrong every single week. But more than this... About a year after I, I started, I found out that a few key council members uh, had been left out of my hiring. They hadn't been consulted when they hired me. And I didn't know this. So it turned out there was gossip and politics surrounding hiring me that I had no idea around. But of course, that sort of thing bleeds out everywhere. The whole experience was incredibly painful. I messed up a lot. And other people messed up a lot, and I didn't know it was them messing up. I thought it was me. <laughs> if I'm really honest, though, not a lot of people in that church liked me very much. I'm not trying to be melodramatic. It's true, but they didn't. Um, so I left. I left thinking that I'd wasted four years of my life. And by the way, that was also my first four years of being married. <laughs> my first four years. I've been married nearly 12 years now. Um, but three of those four years were my first years of being married. I felt so much like a failure. I carried so much shame, both from my failures, but also other people's failures, which had become my shame. You know what I mean? I effectively quit ministry, and I started to retrain as a tree surgeon. 
So if you know what that is, I would retrain the sword who looks after forests. Um, I started to retrain something that didn't involve people. <laughs> but God didn't let me leave. And so I changed job and I started to work for a charity called Youth for Christ. And, um, <laughs> and uh, the national director at the time was a guy called Gavin Kaldner. You might have heard of him. Um, and I talked to Gav one night and I told him about my experience and all this shame and this failure. I asked him to pray for me. And he did. And he prayed probably the shortest prayer I've ever heard in my life. It was like, helped him get over this, I? <laughs> I, I felt really shortchanged. It's like, this is really serious. This really hurts. What's wrong with you? National director. <laughs> and then he said to me, Tim, I really feel that the only person still holding on to this is you. Only person still holding on to this. Not God. It's not that other church. It's you. And he was right. Of course he was. I spent years holding on to shame and to failure and having no idea that's what I was doing. I just hurt. I thought that was all I was doing. But what I was actually doing was keeping a wound from becoming a scar. You understand? Wounds are fine. We get hurt, we get wounded, we get gashes, but it's not fine if you keep playing with them. How, how many of you have kids? How many of you have told your kids to stop picking the scab? Sure. Stop picking it, leave it alone, bring a plaster over it, leave it alone. When we keep picking at wounds, they don't scar, they don't heal, they stay open. It's okay to bleed for a while, but not after a while. Wounds are meant to be scars, and scars are okay. But wounds are not meant to stay scars. When we hold on to shame from failure, we pick at wounds and we don't let them heal. But Jesus died for it. Romans 8 tells us that none can separate you from the love of God. John chapter 10 tells us that none can snatch you out of God's hand. Let me tell you the end of the story. A few years later, God brought me back to that church, the church that I left. Uh, not to go and work there. Um, one of the young people that I worked with was getting married. Bless him. <laughs> and uh, he wanted me to be there. And nothing else would have brought me back to that church. So reluctantly, I traveled back to London with my wife. And I went through the doors, which was the most horrible feeling I can explain. I walked through the doors. I was hoping no one recognized me. And all of a sudden, I was surrounded by about a dozen young people. People who were in my youth club before I left. And they were so happy to see me. <laughs> I, was, I was completely shocked. I thought, I failed all of them. What, what are you doing here? Some of them had gone to train for ministry. All of them were following Jesus. And every one of them said, thank <laughs> God brought fruit right out of the middle of my failure. It wasn't that I hadn't failed. I was rubbish at that job. <laughs> I was. But even in the middle of that, God had it. Let's reflect for a minute. I think before we go any further, before we get into the practicals of burnout, before we get to Act 2, let's just stop. And I'm going to encourage you, actually, if, you, if, if you're happy to do this, I'm going to encourage you just maybe to close your eyes or just to at least don't poke anyone else for a minute. I want you just to be really, really honest with yourself and with God and just try to examine and try to identify is there still shame that you're holding on to from failure? 
Ask God to show it to you. Is there still shame that I'm holding on to? Is there a wound that I won't let become a scar? I want to encourage you, if you can think of something, then just in your mind, in your head, picture that thing written onto a piece of paper and nailed to the cross. Picture that shame that you're holding onto, that failure, written down and nailed to the cross. It has no hold on you. A nail to the cross, Satan can't use it. Father, I just ask you in this room now, by your Holy Spirit, to come and to take these moments of shame, these burdens of failure, and to receive them in yourself. We believe that our failures belong to you, not to us. Please inhabit our broken hearts and let these wounds become scars. Jesus, in your name. Amen. That failure does not belong to you. That failure does not belong to you. Withholding it from Christ is not okay. This will be the boldest thing I say today. Withholding your failure from Christ is not okay. You were bought for you were bought for a price. It's his. We are going to move on to Act number two. A bit more practical. You all right? You're still with me? Yes. Need to shake off for a minute. We're okay. Um, it's so hard to think about burnout and not to think about shame. Um, it's a taboo we don't talk about, the thing behind the thing. And I want to encourage you, if nothing else today, sit down with God and say, shame, no, 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 no. Please take that and have it my failure. And also look back at your past failures and go, God, why did you do that? Because you were there in those moments. And recalibrate what you think of it. Let's look more practically at burnout. I mentioned a minute ago, four years into full-time ministry, I burned out. Um, I told you some of the story, but the way I responded to all that shame was just to work harder. We're feeling some empathy in the room. <laughs> when you feel shame or guilt, I need to fix it. I need to work harder. Parents talk about this when, when their kids... Uh, aren't respondents in the way they want, but it's trying to be a better mum by forcing it. doesn't work. I just tried to put in more and more hours. And there were lots of small signs on the way, but the big one was this compounding shame which led to new depths of fear that I was going to get it wrong, which made me a workaholic. This led to burnout. So at one point, I was working 70 hours a week, 80 hours a week, uh, and I thought that was normal. I had nothing else to test it by. But when I realized that maybe wasn't normal, mostly because my wife never saw me, 
um, I plucked up the courage to go and speak to my pastor, my senior pastor. I said to him, Pastor, um, I'm working 70 plus hours a week. I, I don't feel good about this. What can we do? And his response was, well, we all do that. Shrugged <laughs> <laughs> it off. We all do that. Um, so I kept on going. I kept on being a workaholic. I kept on putting in more hours, thinking that's a normal thing, and the senior pastor was doing it. I started to get sick. I started to get very sick. Um, I wasn't sleeping more than maybe two hours a night. Uh, and when that goes on for six, seven, eight, nine months, that takes its toll. I lost a lot of weight. I'm already not particularly a, a heavy guy, uh, but I lost a lot of weight. I was sick two or three times a day. I had a very serious 24-hour tension headache at the base of my skull. Some of you know what these feel like. It's like a migraine, but it's right where your cranium reaches your spine. And it was constant, like someone had a hand squeezing. And it was there all the time. Someone prayed for me once, and they saw a picture of uh, an animal with its claws in that spot. Uh, I would get inexplicably dizzy, tired, and I started passing out. And so I thought, you know what, probably should see a doctor. Well, I tell a lie. My wife said, Tim, you should probably go and see a doctor. And so I did. And the doctor diagnosed me with very serious stress. Uh, he gave me several medications and some very severe warnings. And he told me, whatever you're doing, you have to quit. Whatever you're doing for the sake of your future, you have to quit. I burned out. Crashed and burned. Spectacularly. So I did. I quit. I quit and I started to look for new jobs. I told you before, I started to train as a, as a tree surgeon so I wouldn't have to deal with people. And you've got to admit, thinking that chainsaws were going to feel better than people is a very strange place to be in. <laughs> I burned out. But God did not let me leave ministry altogether. I left that job. I left my home in London. And I moved with my family to North Wales, which is where I've been ever since, which is uh, nearly nine years now. And it took maybe five years to be fully recovered. And that was with doctors, particularly working on putting weight on and stopping being sick and passing out. But maybe five years to recover. Burnout is not an overnight thing. It's not, I need to go home and binge watch a box set. And I'll get over it. It's very, very serious. And too many pastors stop there. There's too many stories of pastors that hit burnout and left. And that's not good enough. So let's take a minute. I'm going to take a breath and you're going to take a minute. And just talk to each other. We've talked about shame. We've talked about fear of failures. We've talked about the thing behind the thing. But more practically, have a conversation with someone around you and ask them, what are some of the main causes for burnout? So more practically, what are some of the main reasons, particularly pastors and ministers, burn out? Is that Okay. If you need me, pop a hand up and I'll wander around. <laughs> Love it. And especially for Christians, I think many times you have realized that you yourself as well. Yeah. 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 And then you betrayal all the time. You want to see everyone, you want to take care of everyone. 
trying to do all the jobs to be the to, to the evangelist their prophet everything at once which is just impossible <laughs> Okay. So just 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 uh, just feed back a little bit. What are some of the maybe from somewhere over here? What's one of the reasons that you came up with the burnout? We talked about loneliness. Yes. Isolation. Loneliness and isolation. We're going to talk about it in a minute. Actually, it's a huge one. Thank you. Yep, over here. Lack of support, that you're not a part of a team, you're working on your own, have oh. big expectations on yourself, Lack and yes. think that others have a, a lot of big ex- expectations on you as well. So this is great, because you're saying exactly what's in here. Over here? Not seeing fruit of your labor. Yeah. Oh, that's a huge one, isn't it? So what, what, for me, what? not seeing fruit of your labor. Okay, yeah. So I left my job thinking I'd failed, and when I came back, I realized I hadn't, but that doesn't always happen. Yeah, ministry is a long-term deal. And I, I mostly work with young people, and the average youth worker in Britain lasts about three years. So of course they don't see the fruit of their labor, because young people have seven years in school. That's two youth workers. <laughs> but over here. Lack of support, yeah. of feedback from who you're working with. Yes. Also, I think too much work compared to the time you have, mm. or resources. Who's ever gone? There's not enough hours in the day. Oh boy, yes. I'm going to give you six, I think six, maybe seven reasons for burnout, most of which you've already said. And the first one, um, which I think is really important, is pastors particularly are often expected to be everything. Once upon a time, a pastor was there to pastor. And there was deacons and elders and and helpful people around. But now pastors have so much expectation upon them. They're expected (laughs) to be every biblical office. To be pastors and overseers and deacons and elders. They're they're, they're seen as every church role. They're meant to be administrators and secretaries, youth workers, children's workers, families workers, and preachers. And when you commit to doing everything, you get spread so thin, but you don't do anything well. You just don't use your gifts properly. Number one, expect it to be everything. Number two, which a few of you said, no accountability or management. There's a silly, silly, silly idea in churches today that pastors don't need line managers. That pastors don't need accountability. That they're the top of the pyramid. It's not true. It's incredibly hard to manage a pastor. That's, that's, that is true. But what, what hard work... Um, But if pastors don't have clear lines of accountability, then everyone will try and manage them. Mm. Everyone thinks they're your boss. And so it's the same with your diary. If you you don't manage your diary, other people will, right? But holidays, time off, days off, timesheets, conflict resolution, progress reports, I don't think it's reasonable for you to do this for yourself. You need to find someone in church who will manage you. Not be in charge of you, but manage you. So number one, expected to be everything. Number two, no accountability or management. Number three, we said it, isolation. 
isolation. What a killer in ministry. Who would have thought when you were growing up how lonely your pastor was? Who would have thought looking at that pastor figure that he was so lonely, she was so lonely? Pastors can be mavericks. You know, excitable, uh, full-on, charismatic characters. But it's very easy as that kind of personality to find yourself as a lone soldier. Timetables fill up and real friends are few. And you become very, very lonely. Number four. Unrealistic expectations. Again, it was said in the room. What? Unrealistic expectations. Are you in place to serve the church... Or are you in place to save the world? <laughs> Guess whose job it is to save the world? I'll give you a clue, it's not yours. <laughs> You're in place to serve the church. You know, I recently met a youth worker who was told she had six months to double the numbers of her youth group or find another job. Yeah. Her youth group was fine. It was a good group. There's enough people there that she could mentor every single one of them. Double the numbers, or find another job. Who decided that was a reasonable expectation? She did find another job, but much quicker than that. <laughs> Number five, having no idea what you're doing. Now, moment of honesty, uh, this actually might be the biggest issues. There are times when we are, we say in Britain, flying by the seat of your pants. You know what I mean by that? Mm. Flying blind. Of a creek without a paddle, there are times when you have no idea what you are doing. <laughs> we're expected, think about it, we're expected to understand and relate to a monstrous and mysterious creature known as culture. We're then, we're then expected to develop professional plans to execute sophisticated projects. We're expected to hold intention, conflict resolution, personality types, spiritual needs, emotional abuse, organic community. We're expected to be team managers and recruiters, teachers and trainers, counsellors and mentors. We're expected to be sociologists, anthropologists, missiologists, scholars <laughs> and facilitators. And then we're expected not to look like we're any of those things, so we fit in with people. <laughs> That's bonkers. We don't always know what we're doing. And there's only so far we can go about looking that in the face. Number six. Possibly the saddest is forgetting who God is. Forgetting who God is. This can be propagated often before and exacerbated by the lack of accountability, but mostly it just comes from being tired all the time. I think the worst thing is when you start to forget what God's voice sounds like. When you stop recognizing him when he leads you and protects you. Security fails. Passion dries up. You start to feel guilty. You start to feel you're a fraud. You can't deal with the tension, so you give up. And finally, sixth, seventh reason is just getting bored. Again, time for honesty. I sometimes wonder if the reason that pastors can become across as so wildly creative is they're just desperately trying to break the monotony. On the surface, ministry looks like a lot of activity, and it is. But in my experience, for every hour of creativity, every hour in the pulpit, there's two or three hours of prep. And there's another hour of cleanup. But another hour of dealing with the people who didn't like it. <laughs> Add to this a lot of written work, planning, conflict resolution, management, reporting. Uh, often it's repetitive and alone. 
boredom just gets to you. I wonder if any of this sounds like you. <laughs> Expected to be everything, no accountability or management, isolation, unrealistic expectations, having no idea what you're doing, forgetting who God is, or just getting bored. We're going to find out together. We're going to use the next 10 minutes. Um, Can I just ask? Hmm, question. Uh, point number two, I didn't get to the point of that. Uh, oh, no accountability or management. Yeah, so that's making sure... Okay, um, Oh, great. Translation. We're, we're, we're going to take a bit of a test together. We're going to bravely have a go at a test together. Yeah, yes. Can I say something? Because I really talked about point six to me here recently. Because when you're in ministry, you think you're with God all the time. But when you start coming in emotions, God just starts to become doing what you do when you just preach what it is. God has been really hammering on me, and I think we really have to look at that as people in ministry. Because for me, I feel like an artist who's thinking it, until I just took it up with my mentor. And I think it's a real pitfall, actually, it's a real dangerous one, because we start to take God for granted, and we can't, he's, he's not for granted, he's much bigger. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the pitfalls that I see a lot of ministers actually fall in. Yeah, so like, that's, that's really helpful, because the most important thing you can, you can work on in any kind of ministry is your relationship with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the risk is that Jesus starts to get blended into your ministry to such the extent that the mm-hmm. only time you spend with him is time you're prepping yeah. to teach others. Mm-hmm. It's not good enough. If the only time, if I was running marriage counselling with my wife, and the only time I spent with my wife is when we prepped to teach other people about marriage, <laughs> that would be a problem, right? We have to work on these relationships. Um, in the UK, we do something called an MOT. Now, an MOT is a car safety check. It happens every year, and it's there to make sure your car is safe and not about to blow up. I have a very poor history with MOTs. In fact, every single car I have ever owned, except for one, has failed every MOT. Every time. I've owned ten vehicles in the last seven years, most of which have met very sticky ends. I rolled a set Ibiza down a hill into an angry farmer's field. Uh, I paid less than £200 for a Ford Escort which lasted a week before the engine blew up. Um, I had a British racing green Nissan Primera, which quite literally broke in half. Um, So I have a very bad history with cars, the curse of being a youth worker. Finding out how dangerous my cars were and how expensive they will be to put right was just terrible. MOTs can kill you. The truth is, though, the lack of an MOT is much more likely to kill you. What if your brakes are about to fail? Or your air brakes are jammed? If you don't take these MOTs, you don't know what dangers are lurking under the surface waiting to pounce. MOTs are sobering, but they're really important. They make us look in the face of things we may have otherwise ignored. They become so big that we can't fix them anymore. Now, I think this is also true for our Christian lives. Without a decent spiritual inventory and checkup every once in a while... We're heading blindly towards burnout and disaster. We could be suffering in the fogs of temptation, struggling as a yoke of celebrity worship, or just incoherently teaching nonsense to people without realizing it. So, 
we're going to do very quickly, I'm going to walk you through it anyway, a spiritual MOT, a spiritual health check. And what I've got about waking the child. <laughs> um, what I've got here, and just take one on your way out. Um, in fact, what I might just pass them around. Is that okay? Just grab one and pass it around. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to read these questions out. And I'm going to we don't have time to do it right now because it does take a bit of time. I'm going to challenge you to find half an hour today. Find half an hour to answer each of these questions yourself. But I want you to do a second thing as well. You're going to answer them honestly and you're only going to show them to yourself, to God and to whoever else you want to show them to. But once you've answered the questions, I want you to do is there more still coming? It's okay. I want you to do a second thing. Is I want you to score your answers. So if you're really happy with your answer, if you're really happy with it, then write a number three next to it. If you're really not happy, write a number one next to it. If you think that's terrible, write a zero if you want. But three if you're really happy, or one if you're really unhappy, two of you still in the middle. Um, I'm just going to read these out to you briefly. I encourage you to take it away and do them. One from the right. I'll leave some spare. So over the last 12 months, last year, what training or networks have you attended? Who mentors you? Who looks after you spiritually? Who is your line manager? Pastors? Someone who looks after things like your rotor, your make sure you're taking your holiday. Um, yeah, someone who makes sure they're asking you questions like, are you taking your day off? Who is managing you? Who do you talk about your personal faith with? Thank you. Thank you very much. We need to go. That's okay. We are good. <laughs> which volunteers have you released to take greater responsibility? This means which volunteers have you given something to and then let go of it yourself? Properly delegated. This is a big one. What would happen to your projects if you suddenly had to take six months out? So if tomorrow you had to suddenly leave your church and your church collapsed, then something needs to change now. Who are you discipling personally? Of your top five gifts, how many are you using regularly? What books have you read? And here's another big one. What date nights, play dates, visits with friends have you cancelled? Which non-Christians have you connected with personally? Have you made opportunities to discreetly serve others without recognition? Are you giving? How many days off, regular days off, have you not taken? Question number 13. Giving, is it money or is it... It could be however you take giving to be. For me it means money, because for me money is the hardest thing to give. But it could be other. As long as it's different to your ministry, if you know what I mean. Because I think uh, when you're giving for ministry, there's an expectation that comes with that that you're a servant of God. But giving is, I'm a member of the body of Christ. We all give. What things have you said no to and why? Did you book a holiday in advance? Really simple. But so many times I haven't taken holidays because I couldn't afford one because I didn't know I'd have cover to cover the things I needed to do before I went. 
Do you regularly start and end your day with Jesus? How do you feel when you're worshipping God with others and are you regularly worshipping God alone? Do you speak with God about both deep and trivial things? Like Rachel said, have you ever asked God his favourite colour? <laughs> Does God get opportunities to speak to you? How would you rate your gratitude level? How thankful are you? I wait thankfulness. If you want to cultivate anything in the Christian faith, thankfulness is great. Thankfulness leads to hope, and hope leads to faith, and faith leads to love, right? Start with thankfulness. What personal shortcomings have you actively identified and worked on? And can you honestly say you love Jesus? Now, these are simple questions. But if you're scoring, when you add the numbers up, if you score less than 40, then you do need to start making some changes. You need to identify the weak spots, those lower scores, and make changes. This might involve a conversation with your board. It might just involve booking a holiday. If you're scoring less than 30, then please, 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 please don't leave this week without talking to somebody. How do you record them? Uh, three, if you really liked your answer, okay. if there's a good answer, and then one, if you're really unhappy with it. If you're scoring less than 30, please don't leave this week's about finding someone to play with. Um, you need to start making some serious changes because you are on the road to burnout. There is always hope. And uh, I've tried to end before hand, so I can tell you about a couple of things. So I was going to pray and tell you about a couple of resources that might help a bit further. Father, for those of us looking at these questions and going, actually, I'm doing great. Fabulous. Thank you, God, for those people, and may they keep going great. For those of us looking at these questions and going, oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. Will you please draw near to us? Will you rudely invade us by the Holy Spirit? We know one or two of these things we might have been aware of, but when they come together, it's an issue. So, God, please change and inspire and equip and fiercely and rudely invade our lives to fix it. Because God, we want to be here in 10 years. We want to be serving the church in 20 years. We don't want to drop out now. God, heal us of shame. Save us from burnout. And prepare and equip us for the church for the future. Amen. You have been listening to the Vineyard Nordic Podcast. For more information, please visit the Vineyard Nordic's website, vineyardnordic.org.